Welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tunzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. We have a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club today. We have Morgan Matthews. Morgan is a BAFTA-winning documentary director. His first feature film was X Plus Y, a story of mathematical prodigies. And he is returning with an update on an all-time British and world classic, The Railway Children, with a sequel, The Railway Children Return just coming out now. Welcome, Morgan. Hello, nice to be here. So, Morgan, obviously The Railway Children, a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with this classic film from 1970. But in this film, you've moved forward, you've got some of the original cast, but the story has moved kind of forward in time. So can you tell us where we are with your movie? So the film is set in 1944 and begins at the point of the last evacuations of children that were happening during World War II. And three siblings are sent from their home in Manchester to the countryside in Yorkshire to be rehomed with a family that takes them in there. And the family that takes them in is Bobby Waterbury's family. And that is Bobby Waterbury from the original film, um, from Lionel Jeffrey's original, played by Jenny Agata, who settled in Yorkshire in Oakworth after going there with her mother and siblings as a child. And she now lives there with her daughter, Annie, and her grandson, Thomas. So, Morgan, I'm really interested in your experience as a director when you're sort of touching on this classic film, The Railway Children, but making something that's also a completely new story and set in a different time and place. How important was it for you to reference the original film? Did you watch it? Did you use it? Will we see it in this new one? Yes, I mean, of course, because Jenny is in the film and playing the same character that she played in the original Lionel Jeffries film. There is that underpinning, there is that foundation. But I think we also wanted to capture some of the essence of that original, some of the warmth, some of the humour, and some of the poignancy. Uh, It's a film that people find very moving, and it's about a family that's displaced, that is separated from their father, to go and live in a new place with new people and in surroundings that are unfamiliar to them but they have adventures when they're there and sometimes kids get into a little bit of trouble but often that's for the right reasons they're doing the right thing and I think our film has certainly some of those themes in common but at the same time it's not forever kind of referencing the original there are certainly some nods to the original in some of the scenes, in the locations, in the original locations that were used in the first film, and in some of the detail, uh, both in the script and in the production design. And I think fans of the original, people who um, are fond of the original, will recognise those. But people who are coming to this film fresh, having not seen the original, won't be confused either. And it's not necessary to have seen the original, hopefully, in order to enjoy this one. And did you find, I mean, because obviously you've got a really unusual privilege as a director to be working with Jenny Agatha, who, of course, was in the original, you know, and really kind of almost moving through time with her to reconstruct this character, um, I believe, 39 years later, if I'm correct, you know, on from the original. That's what, <laughs> that's what it said in the briefing materials. Yeah. My maths is not necessarily right. That's um, absolutely right. So, yeah, 39, 40 years later, but actually the film is being made, the sequel is being made 50 years after the original. But Jenny wears that extra 10 years very well, and you can tell. 
So, yeah, I think it was important, certainly with Jenny, to know what had happened to her character in those intervening years. And I think her point was she hasn't been in the kitchen making jam for the last 40 years <laughs> um, because there were quite a few scenes that were set in the kitchen. And I, having gone back to the original, having rewatched it a number of times, just trying to kind of understand what it was that made it so, uh, that connected with so many people as well. And having that strong young female protagonist was really important. And she came across to me as, a, as an activist at the time, somebody who was certainly very proactive, somebody who would go against the grain of the adult thinking around her to do the right thing, somebody who would take risks at times to do the right thing as well. And yes, she, she very much knew her mind. And I imagined that would continue in her adult years, as did Jenny and Danny, the writer, Danny Brocklehurst. And so we built some of that into the script and we decided she would have been a suffragette. She would have been part of that movement. She would have been a magistrate as well. And yeah, I think Jenny was pleased with that. And we, we worked some of that into the script. She doesn't like that Winston Churchill. Well, it's interesting because I don't think it's really a criticism of Winston Churchill in the way that some people might take that. I think it's a kind of factual observation of Churchill's position and approach towards the, the suffragette movement. Uh, doesn't mean he wasn't a great wartime prime minister. She carefully says that, just to be clear for the audience. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry. No, not gonna go to, she, she, it's a very balanced line. It's perfectly reasonable. No, yeah. I enjoyed it because it's a recognition of what's passed between the two time periods and between the two films. It's, it's a recognition that that's complex and that people have evolved over that time. Exactly. But I think it's also important to understand why she would support the children in, in our film in doing what they do ultimately in taking a situation into their own hands, ultimately for the right reason. And it was important to believe that she would back them in doing that and that she would allow them to do that, you know. So I think understanding that about her history was important. It is interesting that in this film, you have a much kind of clearer link to certain historical narratives and that it's set in wartime. It's the story of evacuation. You reference the history of suffrage there's the stories there of race relations as well. And, and, you know, the original film was sort of set in the past, but it was much more about an internal family drama, whereas this is a family story set within historical context. And, and you know, the film also tries to tell these stories from a children's point of view. So is there a way in which this film is partly a history lesson for children? Is that one of the kind of ways in which it was framed? Well, possibly. Um, and I hope so. I hope they do learn something about that period by watching the film. I think for me, it was important to have that historical underpinning. And reading the script at the beginning of the pandemic, as I did, and imagining what it would have been like for those parents who were saying goodbye to their children, mothers mostly on the platforms, you know, having young children myself as well, um, at a time when we were, a lot of us kind of separated from our loved ones um, and unable to see them, um, often in very difficult circumstances and through illness and other things. I was certainly kind of invited to reflect on that period in history in a different way and what that would have been like for those young children going away at that time. And it felt like there was a real reason to make the film because of that historical underpinning. And 
it wasn't just kind of conjured out of thin air as a story. And I think it's also now when I watch the beginning of the film, it's become relevant in a different kind of way, which we couldn't have predicted. And seeing seeing those scenes of children being put on trains and separation at a train station and, and families being displaced. And when we look at what's happening in Ukraine and certainly at the beginning of the war there, it's very difficult to watch those scenes in the film and, and not think of what's happening in a very present tense way. And then there's the story of Abe, who's the young black GI who's stationed in the UK, who the children encounter. And the film goes into the experience of black American GIs in the UK in a way that I don't think has really been set in film before, in feature film, uh, may have been told in documentary. And the segregation that happened in the US Army, this enforced segregation, sort of Jim Crow style laws imposed on soldiers. And the film also touches on that and references an event that happened in Lancashire, the Battle of Bamber Bridge, where American military police and officers tried to remove black soldiers from a local pub um, in this town, Bamber Bridge, because apparently they were wearing the wrong uniform. But the, the American army tried to stop black American soldiers going to the local pubs, going into the towns and having nights out and free time there. And when the soldiers were forcibly removed from the pub, a kind of fight broke out and um, ultimately reinforcements were brought in and an American GI, black American GI was killed and a number were arrested and a very significant number court-martialed. And that's a historical event that is known about, but I've not seen that story told in film before. And so the film also references that. Did you find, I mean, because it must be very interesting kind of approaching this with a cast of very talented child actors who obviously sort of have their own smarts about them as far as I can tell. But I mean, you've obviously worked with child actors before in X plus Y and so on. I mean, did you find when you brought the children into this, was this all material that was very new and surprising to them? I mean, I think quite a lot of adults would be surprised to hear about things like the Battle of Bamber Bridge. I'm not sure there is much historical memory about that outside its immediate area. How did the children kind of react to all this stuff about evacuation and you know, these sort of hardships that they went through and the bombing and losing family members. I mean, it's quite dark material. It kind of is and it isn't. I mean, there is a dark side to that. I mean, I, I think we were also interested in how sort of families were kind of broken up by the evacuations, but then these new families were formed as well. And they might have been temporary, but some of them, you know, they existed for, for quite a long time. And just that idea of family and what constitutes a family and the different wartime relationships that were formed out of displacement. Um, I was interested in that. I know Gemma Rogers, the producer, was interested in that as well. And I think a lot of us have stories in our own history and families that connect with those themes. And, And for me, I discovered quite late in life, well, I knew my father was adopted But we discovered quite late in life that his father was a Canadian GI who was stationed in Kent during the war and had an affair with a a young British woman who was already married at the time, but to a British man who was away fighting in the war elsewhere for years. And he came back and discovered the affair and discovered that she was pregnant. And that's when 
my father was adopted after he was born. So I think there was also a connection for me with that story, with a personal story. And ultimately, after my father passed away, we discovered my biological grandfather's name and also discovered that he was still alive in his 90s (laughs) and had belonged to a regiment in the war, which was a special forces regiment, quite a well-known regiment. And there have been documentaries made about them and films made about them. And when we Googled his name, um, all this stuff popped up of him in documentaries and uh, speaking, you know, as a quite elderly man, but looking very much like my father and (gasps) very much like a member of our family. Wow. And we got in touch with him and ultimately flew out to meet him in Canada with my sister and my nephew at the time. So, yeah, that was I think I had that connection as well. And I actually made a film about that. Well, I was going to say this. is <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's an incredible story. I'd love to see it. Please tell us what the film's called, because I'm sure lots of our listeners will love to see that. Well, it's a documentary and it's called This Was My Dad, The Rise and Fall of Jeffrey Matthews. Jeff Matthews, who was my father. Um, and I filmed with him for 15 years plus, probably 20, and with his partner, Anna, uh, who's a very interesting woman. And I'm not really sure why I started. I think I started when I was a student and I was a film student and I was so interested in Anna. She's such a fascinating person. And her family history is very complicated. And that was the subject of the filming that I was doing with her at the time as a student. But then I just kept filming with her and then with my dad as well. And I think it was a way of maintaining a relationship through some difficult times as well. And I wasn't really sure why I was doing it or whether I was actually making a film or it would ever turn into something. But it kept me kind of in touch, really, through times when otherwise we we might have drifted apart because of various difficulties. And my dad used to joke that the film would end with him dying. And then he did die. (laughs) So we filmed through his illness, he had cancer. And actually, the moment when he dies is captured in the film. But, you know, it didn't feel like an ending, it just felt very sad. Uh, And that's when we discovered that our grandfather was still alive, and uh, went out to meet him. And that felt like a much more positive ending, not just to the film, but just to the whole experience, really. I mean, obviously, it continues beyond the film, but uh, it was an important and ultimately cathartic thing to do to go and visit our granddad. Well, thank you for telling us about that. You know, it's an incredible story, but also sounds like a fascinating film. So I'm sure that um, our listeners will want to go and and find it and watch it. And it's interesting that we started our conversation about a kind of period drama and historical context, and then we find ourselves talking about family history. But I think that's true for so many people that actually family history is often the way in which we are, you know, stepping into the past and thinking about our experiences. And and maybe, you know, The Railway Children Returns is an attempt to do that as well, that all the people involved in the making of it seem to have been interested in trying to make it to think about their own family connections as well. And, and as you just you know talked about so beautifully and um, with your own filmmaking experience um, previously. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely. And, and, and I, you know, we connect through history, through our own experiences, don't we, as well? And, you know, we're often invited to reflect on the experience of what it would be like during that time through the experience of our ancestors. And that can be in relatively recent history or much further back as well. And I think, you know, for for children, 
watching the film, whether it connects to their own family history or whether they have that connection or recognise that connection or are aware of that, just as children looking at what children went through during that time, I certainly saw how the young cast connected with that and that experience and put themselves in the shoes of those children in a way that felt very realistic, but also, again, captured some of the excitement of what that must have been like as well. I think there's this duality for lots of kids, the the sort of pain of the separation, but the excitement of going somewhere new and, and being in the countryside and having those adventures as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that you're absolutely right that the kind of context, the new context of Ukraine is really important here because here in our local area, we have families joining my children's school. They have met children from Ukraine and they, they found the idea of being so dislocated very traumatic. My children were quite upset at the idea that you could leave the country, leave your father behind and then be depositors in a completely new school. You know, they were trying to process that experience. And, you know, this film is a film about hope. It's not about the dark stories about some of the difficult things that might happen to people necessarily. It is about a story about hope and how hope can come through change. And I think that is probably what the children are going to need to have in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Morgan, we love to ask our applicants to join the History Film Club to nominate a favourite historical production, film or TV, for our club library. And so I wonder if you have a historical fave that you would like to add. Oh, this is tricky to do off the bat because there might be a number. I could give you a couple. And That's okay. We can, can choose. We'll choose the best one. <laughs> you, can, you can pick one. Um, so recent history, very recent history, but very relevant to today and what we've been talking about as well. The film Navalny, which is a documentary about Alexei Navalny, who was opposition leader in Russia, anti-Putin. And it's an observational documentary film that follows him over this extraordinary period, including, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, the assassination attempt on his life by the Russian state. And I think it's an extraordinary film. And to be with him at that time, it's just incredible. And he's a a very incredible and charismatic man um, and very brave and courageous as well. And he has a a really interesting team of people around him. But I think it gives you a little more understanding of the situation in Russia as well and how difficult it is for people there to connect with truth and, and history as well through their media, et cetera. Um, but it's a great film, so I would recommend that. Uh, there's a film that we made at my company, Minnow Films, called The Last Survivors, which is also a documentary. And it captures the stories of some of the last Holocaust survivors who are uh, living in the UK. And it's quite a recent film, but also it felt like an important time to tell these stories, partly because it may be the last time or one of the last times that we can capture these stories because of the people involved being very elderly now, but also felt very relevant to what's happening in the world elsewhere and in Ukraine and elsewhere in terms of racism and division. And beautifully made film by a director called Arthur Carey with some incredible characters at its heart. And there have been, of course, hundreds of films made about the Holocaust And people might think, what more is there for me to learn? But I think it feels more contemporary and more relevant and is really a stunning film. 
So I would recommend that. Well, I think our club library is very big, Hannah. Do you think we can get both of them in? Yeah, it is. And you're talking to historians, so obviously we want to keep the Holocaust archive and things and yeah, remember those stories. So I think we can fit both of those films in. I think we have to fit the railway children in as well, in our classic section. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, but yeah, I think we can fit both of those in. And we also, of course, like to maintain quite an exclusive club. So we do like to ask the historians and filmmakers who talk to us to nominate something to ban from the club. Now, quite often, this is something that really annoys them about being in historical production. Uh, corsets that are too tight, for instance, or... Uh, bad lighting. Bad lighting. There's <laughs> lots of things they don't like. So, I mean, as a director who's now had to work through this really massive historical production, is there anything that you would like to ban? Uh I can give you a controversial one and a non-controversial one. Uh, <laughs> okay, so controversially, perhaps. I have an issue with films that tell stories that are set in relatively recent past that are told usually in English, but set in other countries where people would be speaking in their native language. Everyone's speaking in English. I yes. actually, I totally agree with you. I think that should be on the ban list. So yeah, we'll do it. I mean, whether I should give any examples of that, I don't, of the language thing. I don't know. Because <laughs> obviously, like, how far back do you go? And do you do The Passion of the Christ and do the whole film in Aramaic and Latin and Hebrew? Obviously, that might make things a bit difficult and some films and history inaccessible for people. But when it comes to more recent history... I mean, it's almost sacrilege to criticise the Chernobyl series at all. But, you know, set in Ukraine and lots of people speaking in English with Russian words on a blackboard or signage and people with Scottish accents. Not that it matters whether somebody is Scottish or English, but it just sort of breaks the spell for me. And, you know, that suspension of disbelief that we need to have with films. Mind you, if you're going to do it, maybe do Death of Stalin and really dig in and make a virtue of it, you know. Exactly. I mean, that's a different way of doing it, but um, not one that feels like it's trying to say this is entirely kind of historically accurate as it was. It's a heightened version, isn't it? But um, yeah, or, or, or things like, now I'm going to slag off lots of other people's films, which is never... <laughs> well, we could move on to the, um, to yeah, the, we do, we the less controversial <laughs> thing to ban. House of like. Gucci. <laughs> Sorry, Ridley. Right, you can get that Who one. I have worked with as well. I was going to say, haven't you worked with Ridley Scott? Yeah, probably <laughs> last time. You can cut that out. <laughs> That's fine. Don't uh, worry. He was filming up the road for me not so long ago, firing cannons when we were trying to do a podcast. So yeah, you know, doing Napoleon. Really yeah, it was. It was firing yeah. cannons for Napoleon up my road. In English, my roads. I yeah. think. Yeah, of course. That's a big old chunk to bite off. But Ridley, you're very welcome to visit us anytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that one's brilliant. But what's your uncontroversial one? Um, suitcases. And obviously with the railway children, there's lots of people travelling on trains with leather suitcases usually. But suitcases in general, and particularly in historical films, that have nothing in them. <laughs> yeah, and yeah very light. emptily from people's hands in <laughs> yeah. a very obvious way. That I don't like. And I always insist on putting stuff in suitcases. And even for the children on the railway children, they had to have their suitcases weighted down. Um, but <laughs> actually, just fling them that around. Is, yeah, <laughs> that is I quite that's quite a good pet hate, actually. But you know, like suitcases too light. And also I once had an experience on a period drama as a consultant where the props team, and I learned very early not to say anything on set. The props team were like, look, Hannah, we've got these trunks, they're 250 years old, they're originally from the 18th century, it's amazing. 
And I went to see them and, and they did look 250 years old, but we were set, you know, it was meant to be new. Everything was meant to be modern. And I was like, yes, but we actually need these to look brand new because they were just been bought last week. They're not actually 250 years old in the film. And so then the poor props team had to spend ages polishing everything, trying to make it look new. And I felt guilty for the rest of my consulting career for ever commenting on the quality of the trunks. But now it'll just be make sure they're full. But it is an issue. <laughs> and, and if you're working with genuine period props and they are that old, they will have aged. And so you either need to rejuvenate them or kind of accept that they've got a bit of wear and tear. But yes, empty cases, although the children on the railway children when they were traveling, certainly as evacuees, they wouldn't have had very much with them. They would have had one or two sets of clothes. They had their gas mask in a little cardboard box, but not very much. We didn't put rocks in there. There's, there's a great, I mean, there's a great scene in, um, I don't know if it was in 1958 movie, The Vikings with Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas, where they, they're having a big fight in a ruined castle. I'm like, you know, it wasn't built like that, right? It wasn't ruined at the time. <laughs> it would have still been up. <laughs> you know, but anyway, I think you're going to say might... they left their suitcase in the corner. <laughs> no, they didn't do that. no, no. But I suppose it would have cost quite a lot to build a whole new one. So, yeah. you know, so this is done. Well, I mean, on that basis, uh, Morgan Matthews, I think we have great pleasure in welcoming you as a member of the History Film Club. And thank you very much and uh, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> we do love to buy our new members a drink from the club bar. The club bar can make any drink, historical or modern, hard or soft, anything you like. Uh, so, what can we get you from the club bar? Well, considering the context, it would have to be an old fashioned. Oh, very good. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I've been Alex von Tanzelman. I'm Hannah Gregg. And thank you very much for listening to the History Film Club. Thank you.